This episode of Wi-Fi Now is brought to you by Qualcomm, advocating for fair sharing and coexistence in unlicensed spectrum to optimize mobile network performance and improve user experience. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Wi-Fi Now in association with RCR Wireless News. My name is Klaus Hetting, and I'm your host on this week's show. Cracking Google Project 5, we've got Nicholas Armstrong of Pravala on the show, and he's tested Project 5 exhaustively. We're going to ask him about the results. Also, Qualcomm's Gerardo Giaretta is here to talk about LWA, LTE Wi-Fi link aggregation. It's a great new technology from Qualcomm. You're going to get all the details uh, in the, at the middle of the show. At the end of the show, David uh, um, Maiman, professor of criminology, is on the show. He's going to talk to us about how uh, cyber criminals are using public Wi-Fi to hack your device. Join us right after this message. Nexius, accelerating network and business transformation. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. Telecomcareers.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Wi-Fi Now TV. My name is Klaus Hedding. We have a great show for you today with three excellent guests. Before I get into that, I just want to share my personal plug with you, as usual. Remember that Wi-Fi Now, the conference, is coming up in Amsterdam this fall, November 17th to 19th. I want you to go to the website at Wi-Fi Now events slash Europe. Check out our great program. All of Europe's Wi-Fi industry and a big part of the world's Wi-Fi industry is going to be gathered there. It's a great program. You're going to meet everybody you need to know in the Wi-Fi industry. So go to that website, check it out, and register. Also, don't forget my LinkedIn group is called Wi-Fi Now Forum. Search for that on LinkedIn and become a member. There's a lot of great debates and discussions and of course a lot of news items and analysis happening in the group. It's a great place to be for anybody working in Wi-Fi, so go there. I'll approve your membership immediately. All right, everybody, I am delighted to welcome as my first guest on the show, Gerardo Giaretta from Qualcomm. He's coming to us live from Qualcomm offices in Rome, Italy. Gerardo, welcome to the show. Hi, Klaus. Hi, how are you? Very good. Good to see you. Thanks. All right. Gerardo, you have been working uh, on mobile Wi-Fi convergence uh, uh, products for a long time, and we would like you to, come, to tell us about LTE Wi-Fi aggregation because that's uh, your area of expertise right now. Can you tell us, uh, for those people who don't know about it, uh, how all of that works? Sure. So LWA is really a way to combine LTE and Wi-Fi for a mobile network operator. Now the context here is the increased data demand that the operator has to deal with, what we call in Qualcomm 1000X. So in that context, of course, license spectrum is the best assets that the operator has, but unlicensed spectrum has always been a, a tool that the operator can use to increase their uh, their offering. Now, as you said, I've been working for a while on LTE, Wi-Fi, and various combinations of it, and there's been various attempts uh, on doing uh, uh, 
combination of them, and in particular, Wi-Fi float. Now, all the attempts so far has always been where the Wi-Fi network has been treated uh, as an independent network or a parallel network compared to LTE. And I'm saying that in terms of service and in terms of radio resource management. Uh, what LWA does, it gives the possibility to the operator to almost use Wi-Fi as a remote radio head of LTE. So Wi-Fi, and in particular carrier Wi-Fi, so the Wi-Fi deployed by the operator, become an extension of the LTE network. So that when the device is anchored to an LTE service, the network can schedule at any given time traffic either on LTE or in Wi-Fi or aggregating both LTE and Wi-Fi. Absolutely. So, and so, mm -hmm. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Ah, so the, the point is, is that really license spectrum is the anchor and then you use opportunistically unlicensed and Wi-Fi in a license to increase the, uh, the user experience. Right, exactly. And you also sent us a very good diagram, I think that explains this really well, which goes well with the next question. Maybe Wilson, we can put that up. So tell us a bit about the architecture because uh, you can use uh, Wi-Fi as, as co-located with LTE or also non-co-located, is that correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. So basically the, the, the basic requirement for this is that the, you need the, some form of connectivity between the LTE node B and the Wi-Fi network. That is, doesn't need to be physical connectivity or reverse can be an IP connectivity, right? So, so there are really two ways how to deploy this feature. One way is you have a small cell when you have both LTE and Wi-Fi. So that's very easy because they're both in the same box. The other way is that you, the operator could reuse an existing carrier Wi-Fi deployment. And with a small software upgrade to those existing Wi-Fi out there, then the LTE node B can, be, can have a tunnel, can be connected towards the Wi-Fi access point. So the way it works is that at any given time, the UE can be connected to both LTE and Wi-Fi. The UE, is so the UE is the device. It reports back to the E node B measurements about the Wi-Fi around it. And then at any given time, the E node B can decide if a given packet on a packet by packet basis can be sent over LTE or can be sent over Wi-Fi. Of course, whenever you do aggregation, you need a form of reordering at the device side because the device will receive data from both channels, right? And so that reordering uh, is uh, done uh, in the LTE software of the device. This allows for much better control depending on the radio condition compared of other techniques that are out there that aggregate LTE and Wi-Fi at the, at, at, at the upper layer, somehow HTTP or so forth. Right, exactly. So, so, there's, so is there some intelligence involved in uh, selecting when to use Wi-Fi and when to use LTE, or does that is that all done in, when you reassemble the packet, so to speak, or how is that done? So, so the 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 key of this technology is the, that is a perfect tool for the operator to do real-time balancing of its assets, right? So then control is completely on the network of the operator. So this is not a technique that you use for any Wi-Fi, right? This is specifically for carrier Wi-Fi that the operator either own or partner with somebody owning the Wi-Fi. 
And so the device is reporting measurements in the same way you do between different LT cells. The Wi-Fi is reporting measurements through the LT network. And then the LT network can decide based on these measurements, based on operator policy, based on other criteria, when to send traffic in, in, in both links, when to send only one or the other. You could, for example, just send a voice and multi over LTE because you won't quality your service for that. And instead, if you have a big file download or any big download, then that can be can go to both links at the same time. Right, exactly. So let me also ask you this from the infrastructure side. Let's say you have a uh, carrier Wi-Fi network or an aggregated Wi-Fi hotspot network that's managed somehow, managed by a carrier, or that some uh, carrier has access to at the technical level. Could, could one imagine that uh, a, shall we say, a separate SSID or a part of that network was used for LWA applications and the rest of it, for example, was used for something else that the, that the, the wireless ISP or the wireless uh, uh, service provider is already doing with somebody else? Could you imagine that kind of split? Would that work? Definitely, definitely. Actually, that's the way we, we envision that to work because, of course, right. you don't want to deploy wi-fi network just for this purpose right so there is uh, as we know there are many wi-fi out there right now that have multiple ssid multiple service id and so this could be another way where the ssid or whatever id uh, the standard would specify that is used by lwa only the lwa devices commanded by a given operator will connect to that and any other device can use the same Wi-Fi infrastructure to do normal internet service. Right, exactly, and I think that's a huge benefit. And I think my next question is, what are the technical and economic benefits? You already touched on that. Is there something you want to add to yeah. that, Jordan? Well, yeah, I think I think so. From a technical point of view, right, uh, to there are benefits to the user and to the operator. So to the user, this is an aggregation, right? So it's like carrier aggregation LT. So what that means is that it gives you higher peak rate, nominal peak rate and average peak rate. So the user will just web browsing, will do web browsing faster. That's as simple as that, right? And uh, the other thing is that it will provide seamless handover between LTE and Wi-Fi because now the Wi-Fi is really connected to LTE. So there is no any more issues of, as we all know, getting stuck in some situation where things don't work. <laughs> and when you go to the operator side, this is the only technique that really allows the operator to do a real-time load balancing. Uh, and so the operator is really where the operator can use the assets that he has to decide in real-time based on interference if to use one or the other or both for different uh, devices in different ways. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's huge benefits of the, this. And, and of course, contrary to LTEU, and I promise not to talk about LTEU, but contrary to that, contrary to that, you're actually with this feature letting Wi-Fi do the work in the unlicensed band and anchoring it to what's going on in the, li in the licensed band, right? But, but uh, it, it's a quite a different way of setting it up, but it has a great deal of benefits. Gerardo, tell me, um, what is the current st status of LWA? Is it it's not the uh, the standardization is not quite finalized yet, or how, how does it look? 
So I think in introduction, you mentioned that this is a, a Qualcomm uh, technology. It's actually a 3GPP technology, yes. not a Qualcomm technology. So a, a 3GPP has a work item on this. So that means that uh, standardization should be complete at the beginning of next year. Uh, uh, there been, we have demonstrated as Qualcomm together with other partners, a mobile World Congress already, uh, uh, some demos of this technology. So there is definitely momentum from both device vendor and infra vendor to, to make this happen. Yeah, and, and so in terms of commercial deployments, when do you think that might happen? So, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it's difficult to say exactly, but I think uh, in, when the standard completes uh, uh, towards the beginning of next year, then you could expect possibly commercialization towards uh, uh, at the end of next year or beginning of, of, of 17, if you talk about the, the standardization uh, path, then of course there are always the shortcuts that uh, if an operator wants to deploy things uh, faster, that can be done as well. So it, it really depends on how much the operator will, will be excited about this. Absolutely. And as you know, the, of course, we hear in the tech media all the time, the LTEU story uh, carrying on and on and on. And the LWA story, in my view, has not been covered very well. And I'm, I'm hoping by this interview to remedy that a little bit. Do, do you have an idea of why the LWA story is not out there in the media? Is it is it still early days? Is that why? or? I think I think it's 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 a little bit uh, that it has, has early days. A little bit is less contentious. So in that yeah. sense, people get less excited because they, uh, so so that that may be a reason as well. The 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 reality is that we really believe that uh, there is a space for both. There is market for both because they really address different market scenarios, right? As yeah. I said, if an operator has. Uh, as a already carrier Wi-Fi deployed, or as agreement with already existing carrier Wi-Fi, then it makes perfect sense to do uh, an LWA deployment, right? If if an operator instead is looking more on a small cell deployment in a license spectrum, that uh, uh, LTU provides much better performance than LWA. Right. So it really depends so, on the operator. But it does it does it does require new chipsets, presumably, or is it a software upgrade to your previous chipsets? Or how how does that work? In, in, in general, these things require uh, a new new development. Yeah. Okay. Gerardo, it's absolutely great to have you on the show. I want to cover the LWA story a lot more, and we want to have you back uh, to talk a lot more, I hope, in coming episodes. So thank you so much for joining us, Gerardo. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. Thanks so much. All right, everybody, our next story and, uh, is about Google Project Fi. Google Project Fi has been receiving a tremendous amount of press, of course, since the launch some months ago. And we also feel, and I'm not the only person that feels that some of the, uh, the, the, the finding as, findings as to what Google Fi can actually do in terms of handoffs and how it all works have been somewhat misreported. But fortunately, we've got... Uh, Nicholas Armstrong from Pravala on the show today. And Nicholas has done quite an exhaustive test of a Google Project Fi device, and he's here to share his findings with us. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Hi, Klaus. Thanks for having me. Great stuff, Nicholas. And so you've actually had a, um, you own, a, own presumably a Project Fi device, and you've 
you've run it through uh, ex pretty exhaustive testing, at least as, the, as far as the handoffs are concerned. Can you tell us a little bit about how you did that? Sure, certainly. So, so I've been working at Provala for about six years now on seamless handover, multi-network management. And so when we saw the Google Fi device, we were really excited to get our hands on it and see exactly what it did. Uh, and so we took it down to Dallas in the United States and Texas uh, and just tried it out. Uh, we tried handovers from Wi-Fi to cellular, from cellular to Wi-Fi. Uh, we did things with data. We did things with cellular voice. Uh, we tried as many things as we can think of. Uh, and obviously, testing is an ongoing process. Um, they're changing their software all the time. Um, and, you know, there's always more tests you can think of. But at least it gave us kind of a place to start with uh, just to see how, how it worked. Absolutely. And, and so you've specifically tested all the handoffs uh, from cellular to cellular and from cellular to Wi-Fi and back and so forth, right? So the first one, a question I wanted to ask you is about the cellular to cellular because Google, of course, says Project Fi is the network of networks and they have two uh, uh, roaming agreements or you could say one with T-Mobile, another with Sprint. How does that work? It's something about two SIM profiles, right? Right. So, so what we found was if you look uh, at the device as it's running on those different networks, on Sprint, on T-Mobile, it actually has a different subscriber profile on each. Uh, so in some ways, it functions very similarly to a dual SIM device where you've got a Sprint SIM and a T-Mobile SIM. Uh, Google's just managed to do that all on one SIM. Okay. So when you hand off from one network to the next, I'm talking about cellular now, it's actually not far from an instantaneous process, right? That actually takes some seconds, does it not? Absolutely. Um, so we weren't able to do a whole lot of testing on uh, automated switching, but on manual switching, uh, we did many, many tests. And what we found is on average, it took us about six seconds to switch to T-Mobile from Sprint, um, and then about 14 or 13 seconds to switch to Sprint from T-Mobile. So that, that's quite a big gap. Uh, and also all of the contacts and everything that's created on the phone, so your IP address, uh, all of your calls, that sort of things, uh, don't actually make it on to, to the switch network. Uh, effectively, the SIM is kind of reprogramming itself uh, to become the next carrier. Right, so, so this, uh, is, is there a, a kind of intelligence that, that measures whichever cellular network is better and then picks that, or, or have, have you discovered that? Or? So we weren't actually able to spend a lot of time looking at, at the automated switching. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. that's one of the tests we're, we're certainly looking to run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, presumably that, that is uh, all the infrastructure is there is what I would say. So we played with the infrastructure. We did things manually. We, we played around with all the different handovers. Um, but the automatic switching is still something we're very, very um, eager to, to dig into deeper. We'll, we'll dig into that for sure. <laughs> if I can help, yeah, I'd really love to know. All right, Nicholas. Tell us about uh, possibly the most interesting part, at least for a Wi-Fi person like me, how uh, Project Fi manages cellular to Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi to cellular transitions, seamless or otherwise. Certainly, certainly. So uh, on the Fi device, we found two major findings. Uh, one is that it does uh, switch from Wi-Fi to cellular when you're doing a call, uh, and specifically it's switching from a Wi-Fi VoIP call uh, or via Wi-Fi call to a cellular voice call. It doesn't go to cellular data. Uh, and that switch is not seamless. Uh, and then the other direction where you start on cellular and move to Wi-Fi, we weren't able to get it to do that. Um, so it's, it's effectively a one-way ticket to cellular, 
And once you get there, that's where you're going to stay. Right. Okay. But when it switches from, uh, I forget the direction now, but when you're saying it's not seamless, it doesn't mean necessarily that you drop the call. The call continues, right? Right. The call continues. Uh, so if you start uh, on Wi-Fi and you're doing a call on the Wi-Fi, uh, and then you either walk out of range of the Wi-Fi or the Wi-Fi goes down for another reason, uh, it is smart enough to uh, reconnect the call on cellular, uh, cellular voice, uh, but that process is instantaneous. Right. Uh, in our experience, it can take about five seconds to do. Sometimes we've seen it a little bit shorter, but that's kind of what you're looking at is that five second period of just pure silence as it tries to get the call back. So a person would actually possibly think that they're, they've been disconnected if it's that long or not. Absolutely. This is something that both sides of the call are definitely going to notice. Right. And in the other direction, you see, say there's nothing. You can't hand over from cellular to Wi-Fi. Right, right. Uh, all of the tests we did where we started on cellular or transitions to cellular uh, and then either, you know, tried to get out of range of the cellular or, or brought the cellular down, uh, that would always result in an instantaneous call drop. So it doesn't even make an attempt to reconnect over Wi-Fi. Okay, so even if you walk into your house or go into your basement on a cellular call. That's going to uh, drop. It's going to drop. But maybe just comment on that because, I, I, you know, technology, I, I think, exists to actually do that. So that's possibly a source of improvement for the Project Fi guys. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I know like we spent, uh, you know, many, many years working and perfecting that technology so you can switch back and forth uh, between Wi-Fi and cellular um, as many times as you want in either direction. I know when your guests last week uh, for public wireless, that they have that technology as well to and from cellular voice. So it's definitely out there. Uh, and if I was Google, that's definitely one of those areas that I would be focusing uh, on improving the product. But presumably they're, they're working to improve this all the time. I know Republic is doing a, a tremendous amount of work as well, as, as well as yourselves. Um, so so what, would you, what would you advise uh, in terms of improvements to this service? You've hinted at some of them already. Certainly, certainly. Google, uh, Google Fi is a very interesting service uh, because it is Wi-Fi first, uh, but they're really not taking advantage of that. They're definitely putting together the pieces for a, a low-cost, high-quality service, um, but they've definitely got some challenges to work through. So seamless handover between Wi-Fi and cellular is definitely one. Uh, and then using their multiple carrier profiles, their Sprint and T-Mobile together uh, in interesting ways is definitely going to really improve the product in the future. Right. So in theory, though, you could have not just two profiles, you could have a ton of profiles or not. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there is some technical limit, but that technical limit is much higher than what they're at today. So I would definitely expect to see more carriers in there, perhaps domestically in the U.S. or perhaps internationally. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the data calls, basically, um, how, how is that handled? Is, there's clearly no handoff between cellular and data. I think that's what you said. Right. Um, but obviously, the, the device will prefer Wi-Fi at any given time for the data call, right? Um, what we actually saw was a little bit counterintuitive, is that it, it tends to prefer cellular, uh, not the Wi-Fi. And it only goes to the Wi-Fi when it thinks there might be like a very low signal on cellular or, or no cellular whatsoever. Uh, and I suspect that's part of the way, or part of the, because of how Google Fi is priced. Um, they don't give you a break for uh, using uh, a Wi-Fi minute versus a cellular minute. Um, but from a cost perspective and, and how much it costs Google to deliver that service, uh, it's definitely cheaper to deliver that over Wi-Fi. And I suspect that's one of those things that they're going to be tweaking going forward so that they can drive their costs down. Right. 
Right. Um, well, it, it's it's really good to hear these things and to have them tested thoroughly, uh, Nicholas. It, it's great to have you here. Uh, so. So, so the main challenges are to sort out the, 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 the handoffs, essentially, which certainly can be done. Um, as, as a Wi-Fi serv first service, I don't know if you've, you've tried the other ones that are around. How does it rank? Sure. So, so what I would say is uh, on the seamless handover topic, uh, they wouldn't be in that first class. Um, Republic Wireless, we've heard very, very good things with. Uh, they work very, very well. Touch Mobile in the United States is another one uh, that works very, very well in between those networks. Um, it's impressive that, you know, in their first out version, they do have a little bit of handover, but at the same time, it's it's very basic, uh, and it's the it's it's definitely an area they're going to have to look at going forward if they want to be the high-quality, low-cost uh, service that they're purporting themselves to be. Right, exactly. And how about the device itself? Does it uh, measure up? Absolutely. The Nexus 6 is a great device. Okay, good. Great stuff, Nicholas. It's good to have you on. And uh, we'll be following this very carefully uh, as with the Google 5 project, of course. Uh, super interesting what Google is working on here. And anyway, Google 5 people, if you're out there, come on the show and tell us. I don't think they're going to do it, but here's the appeal anyway. So, <laughs> Nicholas, great, great to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right. All right, everybody, uh, our last uh, interviewee today is David Maiman. He is associate, associate professor of uh, criminology and criminal justice at the University of Maryland, which is very close, I just found out, to uh, Washington, D.C. And David has been studying how cyber criminals uh, may use public Wi-Fi to hack your device. He's got a project going ongoing right now, a research project. David... Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Klaus. Great stuff. David, tell us a bit about your project, how you've set it up. So we have, a, I think, a really cool project. What we do we, uh, here in Maryland, and it's important that uh, we, we say that it's only here in Maryland, um, we uh, send students uh, with uh, the program with software Wireshark to uh, different restaurants, coffee houses, um, you know, public uh, Wi-Fi location, location that has uh, public Wi-Fi. Um, and the student uh, simply sit there um, in, the, in those locations and sniff the network. Uh, they download all the traffic, um, you know, that uh, is transmitted over the network to their computers uh, three times a day, uh, morning, um, noon, and afternoon. Um, at the same time, what the students are doing is uh, they diagram the uh, location and how the location, what, what essentially how the location uh, looks, and um, you know they try to figure out uh, uh, how many employees are in the location, how many customers uh, are present in the location. Uh, they diagram the uh, way people are sitting next to each other. You know all those important uh, uh, information that we believe uh, influence uh, folks' behavior over the network. And, uh, and, and the, the goal of this project is essentially to try to figure out uh, the uh, situational uh, characteristics um, that uh, influence folks' behavior over public Wi-Fi networks. Right, exactly. And when we talked earlier this week, you also told me that, in fact, there's, you're sniffing other people's data in this project, and, but you check with your legal advisors, that, of course, beforehand, that there's no law, apparently, in Maryland that... Uh, says that you can't do that, which in itself I thought was an interesting point. 
Yeah, so, you know, when we started the project, I was, uh, you know, I came up with the idea of, of, of sniffing networks. I learned about Wireshark. Uh, I talked to my colleagues on this project, uh, uh, Jonathan Katz. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a professor here in the University of Maryland and, and directing uh, MC Square, uh, which is our cybersecurity uh, cyber research center. Uh, we, we both had a few concerns about that. Uh, but then, uh, you know, we submitted an IRB um, application. We wanted to get, uh, uh, you know, the ethic uh, committee here in the University of Maryland take on the project. And, you know, they didn't have a problem with it because at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're sniffing data, but we can't really associate the data with anyone. Um, okay. So, so it wasn't really a, a big deal, um, you know, to get uh, their approval. Uh, not only that, uh, we, we still felt that, you know, we need some legal advice on that. So we went to our legal team and our legal team here in Maryland, um, you know, explored and investigated this issue. And, and apparently there aren't any um, laws uh, in Maryland that prevent you from, from sniffing. Now, granted, if uh, uh, the public Wi-Fi uh, carrier, uh, you know, the owner of the network, uh, specifically mentioned that you're not allowed to sniff on the network, then, you know, uh, you have to comply. And so you know, when we go to locations and we see those banners, we, we you know, immediately shut down, uh, shut the system down um, and, and leave the location. But, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, many locations has uh, public Wi-Fi that, that doesn't have this banner. So we just sit there and sniff, download the information to our computers and try to find some correlation between how folks behave over the public Wi-Fi um, and, you know, the uh, time of day and, and the situation, sort of, sort of you know, how, the, how the, the environment and how it sort of shaped their behaviors over the network. Right, exactly. And there's a lot of folks across the Wi-Fi industry that are obviously super interested in resolving security issues with public Wi-Fi because there have been horror stories of different kinds and a lot of the Wi-Fi uh, public access hotspots out there, uh, especially ones that, of course, that are not run by carriers. Are, are you know very susceptible to attack and so on. Can you tell us a bit about how cyber criminals might you know hack your device through or or um, or, or somehow um, get through to your data on on a public Wi-Fi network? Sure, sure. Uh, so so there are three major ways through which um, you know um, hackers will try to get uh, your information. First, uh, they can set a man-in-the-middle man attack, uh, which is a um, really interesting type of attack where the attacker essentially places his computer or his device uh, in between uh, your computer and the server you're trying to approach. Right? Uh, once once uh, the attacker is there, he, can, uh, he routes all your traffic uh, to the server through his computer. Uh, once, once he does that, uh, he gets all their information. Um, you know, uh, some some of the uh, some of the websites uh, that uh, uh, attack or that, that all of us are essentially trying to approach over, uh, you know, public Wi-Fi are uh, HTTPS websites, so they're supposed supposedly uh, secure. Uh, but you know, nowadays uh, some of the devices that hackers use allows them to replicate the uh, HTTPS page with the HTTP page. HTTP page. And so all the sensitive information that you think, uh, you know, is protected, um, at the end of the day, gets to the, gets to the attacker. Uh, so a man in a middle attack is, is, is one approach uh, that uh, attackers essentially take. Uh, the second approach, uh, which is kind of similar, um, is sniffing the network. So hackers essentially doing what we're doing in our project. They go with Wireshark and they sniff the network. 
Um, and they get all the information that uh, is transferred over the network uh, to unencrypted websites. Um, so this information can be anything, right, David? It could be your bank account details. It could be any sort of personal information. It could, yeah. It could be pretty much everything. Uh, you know, it's important to make, uh, uh, you know, a, a very important uh, um, sort of uh, distinction here between H information that is transferred to HTTPS website and HTTP yeah. website. All the information that goes to each HTTPS website is supposedly, uh, you know, is encrypted. So it's it's more complicated for hackers to get, uh, you know, your bank account and, and your username and your password to uh, sensitive, um, uh, you know, sensitive websites. But you know, having said that, uh, they do have tools that allow them to, um, you know, crack some of the, um, you know, uh, some some of the encrypted packets. Uh -huh. um, so sniffing the network is the second approach, and and the third approach is simply malware. Folks, uh, you know, hackers will send malware to our computer. Um, you know, usually uh, they will try to uh, send the malware through um, things like uh, software like Dropbox. Um, you know, that constantly um, you know uh, tra transfer information from your computer to uh, the uh, Dropbox server, right? So, you know, some of them, many of us do not really know that once you log into the network, uh, Dropbox and all those, uh, you know, automatic file sharing uh, programs uh, communicate with the, with the network. And so hackers uh, can uh, slip malware into your computer and then pretty much control it. Right. So, so do you think public Wi-Fi is particularly susceptible to this? Because there has been a lot of horror stories around. Well, public Wi-Fi is the location where many hackers uh, go and uh, do their thing, right? Uh, and not only hackers. Uh, in our research, we find that um, you know legitimate users go to a public Wi-Fi location to uh, download songs legally to their computers. Um, you know, one of the important reasons uh, for why folks are doing that is that at the end of the day, you know, you don't really have an owner, um, you know, to the to the IP address or, or to the uh, telephone number that you used in order to connect to the network. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, uh, hack, uh, public Wi-Fi public Wi-Fi networks are uh, you know pretty dangerous, right? Uh, and uh, we have to be able to protect ourselves. Uh, we have to be able to come up with security solutions uh, that will protect you know victims, potential victims, users of, 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 of networks uh, from potential attacks. Absolutely, we're going to get to that in just a second. I wanted to ask you, what kind of crimes are we talking about? Uh, do you have any uh, studies on that? So it really depends. Uh, it really depends who are you looking at. If you're looking at the the victim, sort of the end user, um, you know, people like us that simply go to the uh, public Wi-Fi location in order to check our email, then you see folks that maybe, um, you know, their their email account uh, will be compromised. Uh, uh, you know, as victims, uh, you see that uh, those individuals, as I mentioned earlier, go to Tor networks and get malware on their computer. So you know, in a way, you can think about them as criminals as well, right? So the end user. With respect to hackers, uh, it really depends. Uh, it really depends uh, whether uh, the computers they're trying to attack is a, uh, is a target of choice or a target of opportunity. If we're talking about a target of opportunity, uh, then you know the hacker will simply uh, try to take over the computer and get whatever he can from it. Uh, you know, your personal information, your computer power, you know, whatever he can. Uh, if it's a target of choice um, and the attacker wants to uh, victimize you specifically, then you know, again, he can record you, he can film you, uh, he can uh, browse, you know, through your folders and, 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 and try to get some sensitive information about you. Uh, it really depends. Right. Exactly. So, so what are, 
the ways of protecting yourself as a consumer, I guess, uh, from these things. And I guess part of it is simply awareness that you need to protect yourself, right? Yeah, I think I think awareness plays a very important uh, role, um, you know, in in, in in this in this sort of uh, phenomena. Uh, being aware of the hazards, uh, what can happen to you over uh, the network. Uh, this is something that uh, we will try to understand in our third phase of our uh, project. We'll try to figure out whether we can raise awareness over uh, public Wi-Fi locations and uh, see whether we get less crime and less uh, uh, victimization, uh, cybercrime victimization in those locations. However, having said that, uh, if you still want to, uh, you know, so, so awareness and avoidness, uh, avoiding of, of going to, uh, um, you know, websites where you sort of uh, give your personal information. So, you know, and one important advice would be not to go and check your bank account from, from a public Wi-Fi location, which to, me, which to me is really, you know, I never, I never, never did that. But you know, if you look at, you know, some of the reports that Norton, uh, you know, publish, uh, you see that uh, they find that 25% of public Wi-Fi users essentially do that. Um, we we don't we, we do in our in our research we do find some users going to their bank accounts but it's not at you know the uh, numbers that uh, uh, Norton reports. Um, so avoiding giving away your sensitive information is one important thing. But having said that, if you still have to go and, and test uh, and, and check your bank account from a public Wi-Fi location, you definitely want to use a VPN, a virtual private network, yeah. that will encrypt the data that uh, you know goes from your computer to the network uh, and, and the website you're on um, and, and the other way around. Absolutely. It's an issue that I think the Wi-Fi industry needs to address broadly because there's a lot of this open public Wi-Fi that is not secure. And, and, and I thank you for coming on the show uh, to tell us about it. David, can, you, can I ask you, is, is there going to be a report of your findings from your project and will it be public or how does that look? Yeah, of course. So the goal the goal is to come up with uh, at least a couple of papers out of this project. Uh, we are done with the first phase when we simply went to a couple of locations in Maryland and sniffed, and now we're analyzing the data. Uh, in the second phase, what we're going to do is we're going to go with our own router and see how many folks uh, you know, actually go uh, and log in to a public Wi-Fi location that is really private. Um, and so this will be the second phase. The third phase will be uh, a phase where we're going to try to check security awareness and whether awareness really plays a role, um, you know, in, in, in protecting folks from uh, uh, being victimized. The, uh, I assume that the report, the first report will be, uh, we'll see light uh, hopefully by the end of this year. It's a great project. I really look forward to learning more about uh, the outcome of all of that. And I think it's really important that people understand this. And I can tell you, people will go and they'll hook up to your uh, fake Wi-Fi router. They will do it. You know, it's it's, I, I, it's crazy, but they will do it. <laughs> I, I think you're definitely right. Uh, you know, the first place where we actually tried to, uh, you know, have our our public our private public Wi-Fi was in Germany, where my colleague uh, was very skeptical about the number of hits we're gonna get. We got many hits. Uh, we got many many victims in three different locations in Berlin. Good stuff. Well, we'll be following that. Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. And uh, please let us know when the reports are out and we'll definitely make it, have links to those on our webpage and so on so people can read them. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks. All right, everybody. That's it for today's show. I want to thank all my guests. I think they all did uh, a great deal of service. Uh, to all of you viewers out there, I hope you think so too. Uh, 
Before we go, I want to mention next week's show is actually happening on September 10th. And it so happens that September 10th is the sorry, the 25-year anniversary of IEEE 802.11. So we're going to be celebrating that on the show next week. Don't miss it. We've got 802.11 chair, Dr. Adrian Stevens. He will join us. We're also hoping that a Wi-Fi Alliance CEO, Edgar Figueroa, will join us. We're not sure he will yet, but it's a great occasion to have a look back and forward at all the things that have been and will be going on within 802.11, uh, that standard. So we're really looking forward to that. Also, don't forget next week, CEO of Front Porch, California-based uh, company, Mr. Zach Britton is joining us. Front Porch is doing a lot of great work in monetizing public Wi-Fi, especially with the US cable operators. They've got a, a great deal of Super good technology there. We're going to dive into both the strategy and the technology with Zach Britton from Front Porch next week. So join us for the anniversary episode and uh, looking forward to seeing you all again, same place, same time next week. Join us then. Wi-Fi Now is a production of RCR TV News. To suggest a show topic or to learn more about Wi-Fi Now events, you can reach Klaus Heading at klaus at headingconsulting.com. To find out more about Wi-Fi Now and all things wireless, visit rcrwireless.com.